You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I have a very special guest, Anja. She's from the Norwegian regulator and the HDA body and she has a lot of influence across Europe. She speaks at lots of different conferences, webinars, all kind of different things. She is one of the key drivers of the UNETA initiatives of harmonizing HDA across Europe and therefore is really important just generally to our field. And it's great to have such a outspoken statistician at one of the regulators. So stay tuned for this great discussion where we will talk about single arm studies. I am so super excited about the upcoming conference, the Effective Statistician Conference, the first one in 2023, the first one overall for this podcast. And that will take place on April 25th. So after more than 250 people, nearly 300 episodes, we will now have our first real conference. It's a five-hour event with lots of high-class presenters about estimates, Bayesian approaches in early development, medical affairs, digital health applications, simulations of studies and development plans, network meta-analysis, how you can work more effectively and with lots of other topics that help you to become the best statistician you can be. So head over to my homepage, theeffectivestatistician.com and register for this conference. And of course, this conference will be free. So I'm not charging anything for this live delivery of all these different things. Just share it with others so as many people as possible can benefit from it. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library free registration to all PSI webinars and much, much more. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode and today I'm really excited about a guest that I was thinking about having for a very long time, Yashil. How are you doing, Anja? Fine, thanks, Alexander. Okay, so if you're working in the HTA area, Anja probably doesn't need any further introduction. For all of the others, Anja, maybe you can explain a little bit what you do and how you got there. Yes, I've been working at the Norwegian Medicines Agency now since 2012. I have a background in biology. Actually, mostly I drifted off into statistics once the microarrays came onto the picture and data sets started looking a little bit more complex than the usual 10 mice in, in our experiments. And I would say as a woman uh, with an interest in statistics, I was very strongly pushed 
into that direction by many people because I found that a strange combination. Most people don't like statistics. But the real reason why I ended up doing the job I'm doing is because my agency was looking for someone who could explain complex statistical problems to people that don't speak statistician. And, <laughs> and that is where I think lots of my colleagues, uh, we have um, six by now at the agency. There's barely anyone who's a real statistician. They are all coming from sideline backgrounds, I would say, for the very reason that we need to communicate the translation, <laughs> I would say. Yep. So it's not the facts, but rather we explain other people what it really means for their interpretation instead of packing everything in a language that anyhow nobody understands. And that's how I ended up there. Yeah. But you also have a couple of additional roles now. Tell us a little bit about UNETA 21 and your roles there. I'm one of the vice chairs of UNETA 21's Joint Scientific Consultation Committee. The Joint Scientific Consultations are the follow-up of what used to be called the Parallel Advisors, which is a bit of a confusing term because there's also a parallel advice with the FDA, so I think that's where some confusion was living. And before that, it was called Early Dialogues. The idea is that for many years, people like me that work At the, at the border between regulation and HDA, have understood that there are problems when those two stakeholders don't communicate properly with each other. So the industry is trying to serve two kings almost, and that can not really work unless these two kings and their kingdoms are connected and understand each other. And that is the main reason why we have these joint scientific consultations. They have been... One of the two elements of the three joint action programs that UNETA went through in the last decade, two of the products that the industry most strongly felt were needed, and the joint scientific consultations really had an enormous popularity with the usual problem that popularity kills. The HDAs have limited capacity to do these kind of advices. The demand was much higher than what we could offer. But now with the new pharma legislation coming in 2025, the joint scientific consultations are one of the cornerstones together with the joint clinical assessments. Yeah, I hope that both on the regulatory side as well on the HTA side, there will be a lot of new opportunities for statisticians to work on the non-pharma side in the future there and across Europe we get a much stronger kind of representation there at some point. I think that would be pretty cool. Okay, we don't speak about UNETA today. Also, it's great to have someone from that perspective here. But we wanted to speak about a very specific point. We both stumbled over the same LinkedIn post that was there following up the ISPO 2022 in Europe. And someone says, yeah, we need to convince payers of single arm studies. And you said something like, yes, single arm studies shouldn't maybe not be the kind of default options <laughs> for developing drugs and getting it through HDA. Yet on the other side, there is the very often having a complete head to head study is maybe also not the perfect solution either. But there's surely kind of other ways to move forward. Let's start by talking about single arm studies. Where do you see most of these single arm studies coming in? 
unfortunately, they're coming in where they are not supposed to be. Okay. There's a, a lot in the oncology field. The biggest area where we have a problem with a single arm trial, the way it is used. 15, 20 years ago, you would see a single arm trial as a phase two hypothesis generating. Perfectly okay if you want to do that as a pharma industry. But when it comes to approval, it starts getting a problem. It should be a problem, but it's almost a no-go for HDAs. Mm. Because obviously, if one understands what HDAs are supposed to do, which is we first need to assess the internal validity of a study. Then we have to establish relative effectiveness, not just effectiveness, relative effectiveness. And that in itself already tells you there has to be something to compare to. And then in a last step, when we have to make this decision on whether to buy something or not, then we have to run through an exercise which kind of establishes the external validity, meaning that you have to contextualize your results in the context of a national healthcare system. That explains why 27 different member states have 27 different external validity realities they need to compare to. With single-arm start trials, it starts simply by the internal validity. It doesn't have any, <laughs> if you're really honest about it. They are reasonable, usually also because they are almost always of small sample sizes, because if you had enough patients, then I think we all would agree that you shouldn't do a single-arm trial to begin with. Because there is the risk of selection bias. And that is really something that every statistician is aware of. It's a very, very huge problem if you have that. And also, single-arm trials rely on a ton of assumptions. Unfortunately, they often lack any justification. It's just making a statement. And as a matter of fact, we have seen in recent time that some of these assumptions have actually simply been wrong. And once you get more data, you realize that they were wrong to start with. Yeah. Um, examples there of those. Uh, you probably do remember the publication about the accelerated access from the FDA, where they said that for some of the accelerated products, either the survival data were never produced, or in some cases, it was shown that there was no survival benefit. Mm-hmm. And in worst yeah. case, you even have a detriment on the long run when you finally start doing the real analysis and the real data and you have comparisons. And that is because this concept of single-arm trial is really one of a go-no-go decision-making. But this is not how either regulators or HDAs are working. We are not go-no-go. We have a much more complex problem. And we also have this issue that the endpoints that you can use in single-arm trials, they are not necessarily considered clinically relevant by HDAs. An observed response rate is something that is very highly debated. And there are enough clinicians that will tell you it has no clinical meaning for patients. There are patients that claim it has clinical meaning for them. It depends on who you ask. But for HDAs, it is a huge problem. And the endpoints that we are usually willing to accept the time to event endpoints cannot be interpreted in a single arm trial. It's that simple. Yeah, let's say so there's a lot of questions. So first is with observed rates, I think that is that has a name observed in it. So patients assessment, physicians assessments, all these kind of different things are prone to all kind of different biases, as we know. And they are much more susceptible to biases from investigators. You have different investigators in your face. In, this, in a clinical trial compared to that you have in real world. 
This is a typical ones. You have probably different sites and there are all kinds of different things. You have different ways to assess things. Maybe you, you look more regularly, you look, look, more, look more closely, you look more whatsoever. All these kind of things complicate it even more. Now, if we would have something like survival rates, what's, how would that help then? Or what, which kind of problems would you see remaining? And the endpoint is just one aspect. The real issue for us is the comparison. It's not even the randomization, because statisticians should understand that the randomization is just an insurance that we don't have this selection bias. But once randomized, everything happens in a trial. You never have full control. We understand that patients have different experiences. They do different things. Maybe they violate the protocol even without telling you because on occasion patients might lie. So all these things are quite accepted. What I as a statistician find the problem is I can live with variability, heterogeneity, with protocol violations but I need to be able to assess them. And I can only assess the degree and the impact if I have a comparison. Without comparison, this is just all assumptions, promises by someone, no, it didn't make any difference. I can't assess this. And as a statistician, that's the only thing I can't accept. I can live with all kinds of wild assumptions. Then it's my task to prove that they are wrong or that they are overly optimistic or over fully pessimistic or whatever. But in a single arm trial, I'm left with nothing that would allow me even to prove that it's wrong or biased. That is the problem that I see as a statistician. But that's very specific for the statistician. If I have to go and take my health economist role, there are so many additional levels that are coming in. But just to start with, as a statistician, I'm against single-arm trials in a pivotal setting because I cannot make an inferential conclusion. And that is what I'm supposed to do. That's at least how we work normally. Yeah. Okay. So let's speak about the comparison. And I guess if you say comparison, you're referring to something else than something like the statement. In the literature, we have seen uh, response rates of 2%. And here in the study, we have a response rate of 20%. Therefore, this is a breakthrough treatment. Yes. <laughs> and that's definitely a problem. Nothing is more frowned upon. <laughs> if you look into the HDA statisticians literature, than what they call naive comparisons. This is, we all know that even the same company running the same trial, has difficulties repeating their own trial. Yeah. So how on earth am I supposed to com- to rely on something that comes from a literature description where, you know, the yes, they had some similar inclusion-exclusion criteria. And anyone who has ever done a network meta-analysis realizes that this is a guarantee for absolutely nothing. <laughs> because they're going to throw out more studies with the same inclusion-exclusion criteria then you're going to include. It tells you something about the fact that, as I said, randomization is at baseline for the very second you put this patient into the voice recorder randomization program. And after that, um, it doesn't hold anymore. It's only the assignment to the treatment. Then everything has an impact. Your treatment centers, is it multinational? Is it national, regional preferences, local preferences? 
whatsoever. And patients still have rights when they are participating in a trial, so they don't have to behave like they are little robots. And that's exactly the point. So no, you cannot compare trials with each other unless you are really willing to go all the way, trying to figure out how good are they matching? Do we have additional tools that we can use for it? And we see that quite often in HDA submissions. We live with these indirect treatment comparisons. And what I use them for is to analyze how poor the fit actually is. Because if you end up with, let's say, 20 patients out of 200 that you can really match, it tells you something about how uncomparable the data sources actually are. Yeah, that's a good way. Uh, I've just recently seen Ralph at the APF meeting in Germany where someone talked about propensity scoring and we need to look into the overlap. And a way to look into this is the effective sample size. And if that kind of decreases dramatically, like you just mentioned by 80, 90%, then mm, the overlap is not that big. <laughs> and then it becomes a lot of extrapolation and a lot of additional assumptions then it gets really tricky there's a lot of thinking about okay let's start with some kind of target trial yeah the optimal trial so let's say optimally you would have a one-to-one randomized study with a comparator let's call the comparator just for kind of standard of care at the moment and you have, and that would be your ideal trial that you would like to run. On the other hand, you have the one on study where you only have your arm and you have more or less nothing than what I just said, some literature stuff. What would be, if you go back away from the one-to-one randomized study, what would be the next solution from that working towards the one-arm study? I would say that I have to start with a statement that as a regulatory statistician, I agree on the one-to-one blah, blah, blah. As an HDA statistician, I would already say, nope, doesn't necessarily have to be like that. Okay. So our ideas about what is good evidence are not the same as the framework regulators have established. So neither do we actually insist on any p-value or alpha level. Yeah, I know. Call something. It's okay to make it for planning purposes. It's okay to agree that this is a success criterion. So if you don't make that, you shouldn't call your drug a success or your drug development program or your trial. But in the HDA world, that really doesn't count. Because if you come with a primary endpoint that is irrelevant for us, we have to look at secondary endpoints anyhow. They have not been controlled for a multiplicity most of the times. So we actually look at the data and whether there is a, a difference. So we will look at the confidence intervals and we start instantly complaining when they overlap. Um, no matter if you somewhere at some point had a statistical significant result, that's not going to save it for you. And that's why the RCT is not the optimal tool for HDAs per se. But we have to live with the fact that you have to have some standards. Regulators have made these standards. This is a gold standard, but the gold standard isn't the one-to-one or the p-value in itself. It's the comparative aspect with a concurrent control. These two Cs are the core of what we want to see. If you came with a just, single... Just a moment. If you speak yeah. about current control, what's that? 
What does that mean for you? It means that I don't accept something that was generated 10 years ago. Okay. So no matter how, how often you say it, it's the same population, it isn't. Time changes. I always say that every drug we approve is like a mini atom bomb. It changes the world forever because the same patient population doesn't exist anymore once this drug comes to the market. Yeah. It will have an impact. And drugs that have been used before are not having the same efficacy, relative effectiveness in the real world anymore because of this new kid on the block. It changes everything. From that time point on, you might have a selection towards patients with a better prognosis getting the new drug. Patients with a poorer prognosis might be more conservative. Physicians might be more conservative. In some indications, many physicians have a tendency to say, the new is not always better. Let's be careful. Uptake is yeah. very slow. In yeah. others, like oncology, everybody jumps on everything new. It is by definition better whether it has proof or not. And that's exactly where I say you have that these impacts cannot be underestimated in this whole picture. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and that's where that... concurrent is really concurrent means me, patient in the trial, someone looks like me has to be my control at the same time point as I am in the trial, not five years before, not even a year before, because that could also not be correct because my healthcare system changes. And this has to be taken along. And that's what I mean with concurrent. But concurrent doesn't mean included in a randomized clinical trial per se. There are options that people are not sufficiently exploring. Yes, yes. I think there's also, especially if you enter areas where there's multiple options. In a clinical trial, you have one in the world, usually. I rarely see anything that has more than two, more than one active comparator. Maybe you have an active and placebo, but that you have two active comparisons, I don't know whether I've, I've seen that in HIV, but that was a very specific thing. But if you want to compare to all the different drugs out there, especially if later I see all the health economics and these kind of things come into place, you can't do that within just one trial, usually. You would always need to, re, you know, go back to indirect comparison, network meta-analysis, these kind of things, isn't it? In a way, yes. But on the other hand, there is no real, it's a perception that you have to compare yourself to everything out there. And that's really not true. <laughs> we just had a DIA meeting about the famous PICO. And the industry claims that it's going to be like 400 PICOs in the European context. That's really not true. The majority of us have one PICO. That one describes likely our preferred first choice comparator. But for pretty much anybody who does cost utility analysis, the idea is that you need an anchor yeah. from which to build onto the other comparators. That's what we are looking for. That's why we want head-to-head -head comparisons, not versus placebo even. We don't like placebo per se. I'm trying to explain to the industry already for quite some time now that there is a strategic choice you can make because regulators will accept several comparators in your study. But if you are really smart, and I really hope there are lots of people that are going to listen to this that are really smart, you will choose your comparator for your randomized clinical trial based on an exercise on beforehand, trying to figure out which comparator would give you the strongest network meta-analysis or indirect treatment comparisons options for the HDAs. 
And that might, in, as a matter of fact, not always be the last drug, but rather one that where there is more evidence available. And if you make that exercise on beforehand doing this network meta-analysis, and you can easily figure out if there is a comparator that has huge advantages because there are many other studies that would allow you to build a stronger network, that should be your first choice. Because yeah. in the end, it might be one of the PICOs. And the idea is that we can formulate PICOs with different populations or different comparators. And the difference is between and and or. We tend to say or, meaning that we have a preferred comparator, but we would also accept another comparator and a third comparator in worst case. And if any of those are the ones that you can pick and that help you to then make this extrapolation to the other comparators, the contextualization that is required for different countries, then you can make your job easier by just doing your homework on beforehand, not afterwards, because that's what always happens. You run your trial, you've start, discussed it only with the regulators. They said, yes, this is okay. They don't tell you something else would also be possible. They just say, no, this is okay, because that's the question you're asking. Instead of saying to yourself, what's the strategic best choice? Yeah. And would that still be acceptable for the regulators? And probably it would be. They wouldn't say no to that either. But then if you made your homework, you realize that it does pave the way for the other analysis that are needed for the 27 plus every other country in the world that does cost utility analysis. It's not just us 27. There are many other countries that do the same. So yeah. this is strategic thinking, and it means that you have to start thinking reimbursement from day one before you start your drug development. You know, when you've decided the go, this is going to be a drug we want to develop, then you have to start thinking reimbursement and how do I get it to the patient, not how do I get approval. Honestly, having worked for about 20 years in the pharma industry, I can tell you that the, the statisticians that work on regulatory and the statisticians, if there are any that work on HDA, can work actually much closer together and have an advantage here. So because the stats community within these companies is usually quite small, at least compared to all the other communities, the medics, the, the HTA market access people, they are a little bigger than the, HTA, than the stats departments. And that can be an advantage. There's, you can know each other quite well, and you can help each other. But of course, that means that you need to reach out. You need to learn from each other. I've yet to come across a statistician that knows both worlds, the regulatory and the HTA world inside out. I'm just not sure that one career is long enough <laughs> to become such an expert. Yes, there's always the need for working together. And so as soon as you start thinking about your phase two, phase three plans from a regulatory side, it is so important to internally work together and to have someone from the stats side and can also think like these kind of strategic things. There's always usually someone that is new product planning, HDA market access person, at least in the bigger companies that have already one drug on the market and have went through all the pain. Have someone within your stats department that works on that. That is so important.
Okay, so yeah, that's really helpful. So you don't need to compare to everything within a clinical trial. You can compare to one that gives you a lot of strategic options. I can think about one area that I've worked a lot in is psoriasis, for example. And there are two drugs. One is etanercept, and the other one is ustekinumab. And lots of studies have been run against these. Of course, most studies have been run against placebo, but if you look into the network, these are the ones that really stand out. Now, etanercept is maybe not so much the standard of care anymore. Ustekinumab is a little bit more kind of recent. It's probably still the workhorse of many dermatologists out there. So that might be actually a good choice for a comparator where you get a lot of bridge comparisons against all the new treatments out there because there's a lot of head-to-head studies against Ustekinumab. And that gives you all the strengths you need while also giving you something relevant for day-to-day physicians still. Maybe not the avant-garde dermatologists that always jump to the newest ones, but actually dermatologists are more the conservative people. They stick with their standard treatment for quite some time. Maybe that's also another problem, but we have there lots of opportunities. Okay, very good. So we have the, let's now do the step from the RCT, we have here a relevant comparator, and it's maybe one-to-one randomized. What would be the first, let's say, step towards a one-arm study? I always think in terms of what's the question you need to answer. I'm really a lot in favor of thinking adaptive design, because that really does allow you to stop your control arm, for example, once you reach, you can do the threshold crossing, for example, or you can define hallmark reach points that you have to reach. For example, in some of the rarer diseases, you can yep. probably best define something where you say, okay, now we've seen enough. And we've seen enough is, I think, where sometimes the statisticians are getting in the way on the regulatory side. They wouldn't get in the way on the HTA side because Enough is not the same as statistically significant. So, yes, you can accept a certain risk, accepting that you've seen enough, which might not be the same as the inferential framework. Uh, and you need to be willing to discuss that. What, what is enough? When do I feel that I have seen the data that make me certain enough on safety or an efficacy endpoint that I would accept that now the controls can go out? Mm-hmm. It depends also on your claim. And I think there's something that is just, it's a bit broken in our system. Patients, payers, HDAs, we all want better drugs. But if we can't get better, doesn't mean that someone who is as good as couldn't come to the market, preferably with a lower price or preferably with another advantage. So, yes, there are reasons why you want additional drugs on the market. But the idea seems to be that everybody says we have to be better, but that's so difficult. So to avoid having to be better, we do a single arm trial, which is a completely unlogical choice. And that's, I think, where I'm most frustrated with the system. It doesn't have to be better. It can be just as good. The point is that you have to prove it. And the proof is only possible when it's comparative. 
it's never possible by just claiming that I am potentially better, theoretically better. No, bring me data and let's discuss what this data has to look like. And there are, as I say, many options to decide on, okay, maybe you're not better. Doesn't mean that you're, you couldn't be in the armamentarium of the dermatologist as a useful tool. Maybe your side effects are different or the frequency of administration is preferable for some patients, but not for others. Really not the issue. The issue is the proof. And you have to prove any claim of better just as well as you have to prove any claim of not worse than. And that has to come from, and there always has to be some RCT part in your development program. How big that has to be, that's a different point. And just as you say, for example, if you understand that uh, your trial is going to be enormously big if you have to include a very heterogeneous patient population, then the discussion has to be not around how can we minimize the costs and the burden to the companies in the development program. <coughs> we want to spare patients. We can come back to the spare patients argument. The point is, which questions can only be answered by comparative data and which questions can be potentially answered by a different approach. And a different approach, for example, for me, and many have published stuff on it, including me and Frank Pretz and a couple of colleagues on hybrid designs, where we say not everything has to happen in the RCT. You can find additional information, for example, on populations that you do not want to include in the trial due to heterogeneity, you can find information on the natural history, but please not from 20 years ago, yeah. do it concurrently. If so you, if have... you talk about hybrid designs, it means you have some kind of external controls. Yes, observational <laughs> aspects, I would call them. And there are many options. Few of them are discussed because at the moment, it is pretty much the thinking that if we go observational, then we do that in phase four. You know, and everything is already broken. <laughs> so we have created a problem by design. We did not do the right trial for everyone. We have missed collecting relevant information on subpopulations or on other comparators, on different endpoints that are more relevant for others. But now we want to fix this problem after the facts. And that's never going to work. We all know that's not going to work because, again, concurrent is the miracle word when it comes to this. And that's where I think statisticians have a huge potential to show everything between the RCT and the single arm trial. There is a myriad of possibilities. What you could do that minimize the number of patients that have to be potentially exposed to something they might find unattractive. But keep in mind, unless you have proven it black on white that you are better or as good as any claims that ruin the equipoise of the development program are really misplaced. Patients also need to understand that new is not always better. And they are going into this trap of, there, I always say that there's a reason why we have double blind as an aim, because physicians are equally bad in judging what is really going on. They also mostly see what they want to see. And as a statistician, when I tell people what we are doing, I always say we are the science of trying to help people to avoid seeing things that are not there. That's what we do. Or just seeing the things that we want to see. 
Yes. And trying to give them a possibility to understand no matter how much they want something to work, there's an alternative explanation. And if there's enough evidence that the alternative explanation that it doesn't work is supported, then they have to simply accept that fact. That's what statisticians are supposed to do. Not tell people that all the time, no, you can't do this or you can't do that. We have to explain to them the potential of misinterpretation, the risk they are taking if they make a decision based on something that's not solid enough and not robust enough, understanding the dangers of not having a control arm. And yes, at the very end of this discussion, when we have offered them many alternatives in between that would all have benefits in terms of their design being more robust, more attractive, and still attractive enough for patients, then we can in the end, come to the conclusion that in some instances, a single arm trial is the only option. And I agree on that. But an important aspect is always, you need to make a difference between generating just evidence for some signal of efficacy and the wish to generate scientific knowledge. I think trials have to be the latter, not the first. They need to contribute also to the scientific knowledge. And avoiding all the problematic questions by doing a minimalistic design is when the industry refuses to contribute to the building of scientific knowledge. And also, I agree that we have to protect participants in trials as best as possible. But then again, a trial is an experiment. There is no human right to participate in an experiment. It's your free choice. There's also no human obligation to participate in an experiment if you don't want to. But what the experiment should in the end lead to is information for future patients. And at the moment, with the way we are developing drugs, we are sacrificing the future patients with the argument that we have to protect the participant in trials from having to do something that is unpopular. I keep wondering, all the generations before us that had to go through all the randomized clinical trials to give us the drugs we have today. Have they all been idiots no. for doing so? No, they haven't. And do we have an obligation to try to at least participate in these experiments for the greater good? Yes, we do. If you don't want to, you don't have to. But if you do, then please participate in a good trial. Yep. And actually, I think it's, I would put it the other way around. It's ethically questionable to put someone in a bad study. You put them at risk without a lot of benefit in the end. And I'm, I really like the approach with the adaptive design because that gives you lots of opportunities, especially if you at the same time also run a prospective observational where you get exactly what you talked about, the concurrent treatment. You get patients from other sites that don't participate in the study, you get maybe also patients from the sites that don't fit the exclusion criteria, are certain vulnerable populations whatsoever. And that helps you to exactly establish that, that framework that you talked about in terms of the external, what did you say, contextualization. And it also helps you to understand what's really going on at the moment in the studies. In, no, not in the studies, in the clinical practice. Usually we have different ways of treatment in different countries, in different regions of the world. 
And if you're talking about a rare disease, that's also a great opportunity to get in touch with all the different researchers around the world. Not, I wouldn't call that my kind of primary objective here, but getting in touch with all these people that care about the same patients that you want to treat in the future and that want to, that should benefit from the treatment in the future has never been a bad idea. I think that's a very good approach. By the way, it also, these types of studies, help you get data on many more aspects. Yeah? Things that you will get asked throughout the HDA process. Any epi data, any kind of burden of disease data, any data about what are the typical treatments out there, what are the treatment patterns, where are the problems, what are the patient, what do patients care about, all kind of different things you can learn from this observational data that you actually cannot learn from the RCT. And I completely agree. Observational studies shouldn't be only run in phase four. I think they are very well placed before phase, before approval. Just that, of course, in an observational study, you can't have your experimental work, but you can collect lots of data that help you contextualize your experimental work data. Yes, absolutely. And sure, if you, those areas where everybody agrees that maybe a single arm trial is the only option, those often diseases where you have 100 patients globally. And yes, you want these physicians and these patients to build a network because most likely they will show you that they have poor data on their natural history, which kind of speaks again against the single arm trial. They have an extremely heterogeneous treatment option map because everybody tries something, but nothing really works. That's the disadvantage of being so rare. But instead of trying to really identify the evidence gaps at the start, work towards it and say, okay, maybe maybe it isn't this generation we can save, or we can bring a good treatment to this generation. But for the next generation, we can build a basis on which we can finally identify a working treatment when we have one. Because it's in the orphan area where you really wonder, is the treatment really not working? Or is it just because the data are so poor that we can't see it might be working? And that's where you run into this, where you say, okay, that is just poor planning from everybody's side. It's not identifying early enough what kind of evidence is needed. And that evidence is not just the trial for my drug. It is this larger context that you're describing, what I call the scientific knowledge. And scientific knowledge is actually what is needed for good decision-making. And decision-making, strangely enough, falls into the category of HDAs, payers, physicians, patients, their families. We all have decisions to make, and we all feel like we have to make them on insufficient information coming from drug developers. And that's where the line is where we say this has to change. It simply has to change because I feel uncomfortable. I'm getting old enough. I'll be a patient sooner or later for something more serious than the little aches and blah, blah that I'm having. And if I go to my doctor and I have the idea, they look at me and say, yeah, we have this armamentarium. I have this box, 10 drugs in there. Make your pick. Uh, take your favorite color or the favorite package size because as a matter of fact, I cannot tell you, you should, you as a patient should take first 
the green ones, then the blue ones, and then the yellow ones, because I have evidence that supports this. Instead, they're just offering me all of this. And it's again, back to where we started, trial and error. That was the reason why we invented statistics in the first place, why we invented RCTs, why we are hammering on that we need better evidence, because we don't want to have this trial and error. And yet, when you go into the clinic, you start feeling like, okay, there's an awful lot of trial and error going on. Awful lot of, in my experience, coming from your doctor. And I'm really like, I don't want experience. I want evidence. Yeah. <laughs> Completely agree. That is, you basically just summed up my personal vision. I want to make sure that payers, physicians, and patients especially patients and their caregivers, their parents, their kids, if they are elderly, have the right evidence, the right time, and in the right format to make the right decisions. So the last is also really important. It's not sufficient that the evidence is somewhere out there, hidden behind a paywall of a journal or in clinicaltrials.gov that nobody other than us statisticians and sometimes even we can't understand what's really in there. That is really important. Even if the evidence is there, it's hardly communicated well throughout the system so that we can make informed decisions. Data literacy is surely one part there, but as an industry, we can definitely improve that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I... And I was really happy was, I know that not everybody is so fond of the estimate framework and feels it's just adding another layer of complexity to everything. But I did, in fact, discover a couple of studies that didn't use some kind of fancy acronym as a title of their study in clinicaltrials.gov anymore, but they actually used the estimate description. Uh-oh. And that is something that I would really love to see everybody to do. Don't give me the wonder or miracle acronym that you torture out of whatever description you have given you to your trial. But tell me really explicitly on the first page in the description what your trial is actually doing. Because yeah. that would help me also to make a better selection on saying, okay, these are not relevant anyhow. Don't have to dig into, get frustrated, no report, no data reported. 99% of everything I look at, apparently, I'm really poor at finding studies with results, I would say. So that's another step forward. Everybody has to learn. And that's where the estimate framework really is still not reaching the right audience. Everybody has to learn to put in words, as Albert Einstein said, if you can't explain it simply, then you still haven't understood it yourself. You need to be able to explain what your trial is going to do. Which question are you going to answer? And then you can go to others and say, is this actually a really relevant question for you? And that includes patients. And they will, I think, very often tell you, I don't really understand why this is a relevant question to begin with. That's where the dialogue starts. That's where you start understanding, okay, I'm doing something, but it isn't helping someone else to make a decision. So why is that the case? And is there something we could do to improve that at least? It doesn't have to be perfect. And I agree, it's not always something that works. You cannot ask patients what they find important when that is something that you cannot operationalize in a trial. I understand that. But you can still at least then start thinking, okay, if that is so important for patients, 
can we somehow generate evidence around that topic in some other way? doesn't have to be an endpoint in a clinical study per se. Can we find some other way? Or can we simply at some point start designing studies that are never meant for approval by FDA or EMA, but these are studies that are meant to provide information, relevant information for others, and they don't need to follow some kind of statistical rigorous framework. If you just be honest about it and you say what you really want to do. You can still use the statistics, but you don't have to be a sucker for the alpha of 5%. Yeah, completely agree. Awesome. We touched a lot of stuff in this nearly one hour chat <laughs> about HTA, regulators, one-on studies, clinical trials that are kind of head-to-head. What is actually a good comparator? What's the strategic choice? The overall evidence that you need to have. That is not just your clinical trials. There's a lot of companies that talk about the integrated evidence plan. And better you are in that as a statistician or as a stats function. I think actually we can actually drive that very nicely. And what we talked about a couple of different design options as well to how to get there. Thanks so much. Anya, that was an outstanding chat. If you would like the statistician listening to this with one key takeaway, what would that be? That we have to see ourselves as facilitators for trial designs that answer scientific questions. We are scientists and we should stand for that. And I know it's very hard to pick up that fight for anyone. It's a hard fight on the regulatory side. It's a hard fight on the HDA side. It's definitely a hard fight within pharma companies. I know the argument, why should we do something more? Because our competitor got away with a single arm trial. That's where we have to really push extremely hard and say, I saw it the other day on LinkedIn also, that is right. Even if nobody does it, wrong is wrong, even if everybody does it. That should be our motto for 2023, I think. Yeah. Upskill your leadership and influencing skills. And then let's do that together. Thanks so much. Have a nice time. And maybe we speak again on this podcast in the future. Yeah, would love to. Thanks, Alexander. I do hope you enjoyed this discussion with Anja. And I'm pretty sure you will enjoy participating in the upcoming conference, the Effective Statistician Conference. So head over to the homepage and check the registration and make sure that you have time on the 25th of April in 2023. And see you there at the conference. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain and her team at VVS for help with the show in the background. And thank you for listening. Reach your potential, leap great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.